Reformation, Reformation not only uh, in their worship of Yahweh in the temple at Jerusalem, uh, but also Reformation throughout the land in how they continued in their worship of Yahweh uh, in their respective communities. Uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, we will get to our third lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, for bringing us together as your people. Thank you for your holy word that you have uh, revealed yourself to us in such a special way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illumine your word, uh, open our hearts and minds, teach us what you would have us learn, uh, these glorious truths uh, from the passages before us. Uh, aid me as um, the teacher, help me to depend upon you, and help me to teach what you would have us learn this morning, and that we would live out these truths um, in the coming days at your, as your witnesses. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> I do have an outline. Uh, it's in the back. We're going to be uh, following the outline. There are, let's see here. There are six points uh, that we will address uh, in our outline. The first being Judah's rebellion, and then we will examine uh, Hezekiah's foreign policy. The third, uh, we would look at the Syrian invasion in, uh, in greater detail. And we'll see how Hezekiah responds to the Syrian invasion. And uh, the fifth point is the, uh, the speech of Hezekiah's spokesman. Uh, we will learn that he actually is one of the, uh, Hezekiah's uh, top three commanders, the Rabshakeh, uh, and his speech to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, rather. And then we will end with uh, application. Now, the, the narrative before us has captivated the audiences of people uh, and that is what we will examine this morning. This, the Syrian invasion even captured the imagination of uh, one of England's greatest poets, Lord Byron. And he penned these words in one of his poems. This is the first stanza of that poem. The Syrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheave of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls on nightly on deep Galilee. So when Hezekiah became the sole ruler of the kingdom of Judah in 715 BC, there was a national crisis. And it was twofold in nature. The first was one of, uh, was an internal crisis, and that was apostasy from Yahweh in their worship. And there was the external crisis of the Syrian threat of invasion and conquest of the nation of Judah. Now, God was at work in Hezekiah's heart where he saw that both threats were, uh, were intertwined. Uh, their apostasy was from Yahweh. Their internal threat is what had led to their ex external crisis of the Assyrian invasion. So uh, he does the right thing. Uh, this is what commentator Michael Wilcock says in this regard. But everything in its order, a clear view of how to cope with the crisis 
meant that he must first look not to the threat, that is the Assyrians, nor to the threaten, that is the people of Judah, but to the God who was over both. And as we had examined the last two weeks, Hezekiah does just that. However, by, by the time Hezekiah is the sole ruler uh, over the throne in Judah, the nation had already been a vassal state of the, uh, of the kingdom of Assyria, and Judah was paying an annual tribute to Syria. And this had all begun under the reign of his late father, the wicked king Ahaz. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, uh, verse 18, we read, At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. So Tiglath-Pileser, the Syrian king at that time, came against him, and instead of helping him, he afflicts him. He afflicts Ahaz and the people of Judah instead of strengthening them. So, so when King Ahaz sought the help of the Assyrian king, he, in effect, went into covenant with this Assyrian king and became his vassal, uh, the nation of Judah becoming a vassal state of Assyria. And this was God's judgment on the nation for its disobedience uh, through their apostasy. Now let's look at uh, our text, one of our texts, Second uh, Kings chapter 18, <coughs> starting in verse, uh, verse 6. Second Kings 18, verse 6. Uh, actually, let's start with verse 5. This is speaking of uh, King Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Syria, and would not serve him. So the text does not say, um, give us further details as to what this rebellion looks like. Uh, but commentators believe that when Hezekiah rebelled and, and uh, stopped serving the Syrian king, it, it meant he, was, he stopped paying the annual tribute that was required of the vassal state. And Hezekiah had timed his rebellion um, quite well. Uh, his, uh, Sennacherib's father, Saragon II, was a formidable king and he was a, uh, a capable military uh, commander. Uh, he perished in one of the conquests, in one of his uh, military campaigns. So when uh, Saragon died, Sennacherib, his son, comes to the throne in 705 BC. And right about that time, the vassal state uh, of the king of uh, Tyre and Sidon, they rebel against uh, Assyria. And Sennacherib is preoccupied in quelling this rebellion and bringing that vassal state back, back into submission. So he was uh, more preoccupied with, uh, with restoring, restoring order to the Assyrian kingdom. So it is at this time in 705 B.C. that Hezekiah decides to rebel against the nation of uh, Assyria. So nonetheless, uh, Hezekiah's rebellion, strictly from a human perspective, is a horrendous uh, uh, foreign policy. 
it is political to suicide for him to have rebelled against Assyria. But yet we see that Hezekiah makes a strong spiritual statement. He says effectively that our nation, we will not serve the Assyrian, rather we will serve Yahweh, and who we should have been serving and worshiping all along. So as we examined that Hezekiah in the last two weeks did not look to the Assyrian threat right away. Rather, he deals with the internal conflict that is apostasy within the nation. Michael Wilcox says, but instead he first looked up to God, where he and his people right with God was God's temple open, clean, glorious, with offerings and praise. The result was that when the invaders did reach Jerusalem, the presence of God filled it, and it was impregnable, end quote. So we shall now begin to see how truly impregnable Jerusalem is. That's, that brings us to our second point, which is Hezekiah's foreign policy. So Hezekiah obeyed God in dealing with the internal conflict of apostasy within the land. However, Hezekiah's actions in dealing with the external conflict, the Syrian invasion or the threat of, of the Assyrian invasion was more of a mixed bag. Commentators believe that Hezekiah entered into an uh, alliance with certain cities of uh, Phoenicia, uh, the various uh, nation states who were really vassal states of, uh, of Assyria in, in the nation of Philistia, and as well, he, uh, he also entered into an alliance with the nation of Egypt. Now, there is no clear biblical evidence of his alliance with, uh, with Phoenicia and Philistia, but Isaiah clearly rebukes the king and his people in, over Hezekiah's alliance with the nation of Egypt. Uh, turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. And we will look at what Hezekiah does in his alliance with Egypt. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to, take sh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation." So clearly a rebuke from the prophet Isaiah, who was uh, Hezekiah's confidant in their, uh, in their alliance with Egypt and likely other uh, foreign nations uh, surrounding uh, their, their nation. So here Hezekiah and the people, they, they failed to learn from the, the history uh, or the lesson of their, the mistakes of their forefathers. If you recall King Solomon, he entered into various alliances through marriage. He married uh, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh uh, and the daughter, daughters of other foreign kings, uh, entering into alliances with these foreign nations uh, for security, for safety, and for, for peace. 
but in the end, that was his demise, because as we learn, that these foreign wives turned Solomon's heart away from the worship of Yahweh. And that was the beginning of the end for the nation of Israel, for the kingdom of Israel. And also, more importantly, Hezekiah and the people of Judah, by aligning, aligning themselves with these foreign kings, with these foreign kingdoms, had clearly violated the terms of their covenant with their suzerain king, Yahweh. Yahweh had covenanted himself with this nation to be their God, to be their king, and this, their alliances, their covenants with these foreign nations was a clear violation of their covenant with Yahweh. It was he who had delivered them from their slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand, yet here they are, willing to go back to slavery in Egypt by, uh, by taking the yoke of Egypt and aligning themselves with this uh, pagan nation. Yet even in this scathing rebuke that Isaiah gave, uh, that God gives to the nation and to its king for their, for their ungodly alliance, for their unholy alliance, uh, Yahweh avails himself, calling on his people to return to him and to rely upon him alone for deliverance from their enemy. Read on with me at, uh, in verse 15, Isaiah chapter 13, 30, verse 15 and uh, verse 18. We read, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of uh, Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And in verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now let's look at the invasion itself, the Assyrian invasion. There might be a, a bit of a disconnect here because there are two different passages that we were, will be examining. The first being uh, what is the historical narrative in, in Second Kings and the, uh, the parallel passage, passage being the, that of the chronicler in Second Chronicles chapter 32. So uh, to get, get a, a background, a brief background of the Syrian invasion, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't take a year. It didn't take five years. It took more like 20 to 30 years before the Syrian invasion came to, uh, to full fruition as we see in this narrative. Um, it goes back to the sixth king, uh, rather the sixth year of King Hezekiah's reign. This was the time when Hezekiah was co-regent with his father Ahaz. At that time, Assyria had conquered the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and it had deported the, uh, the northerners to the uh, various uh, 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 surrounding uh, nations which were part of Assyria. So at that time, the kingdom of Israel had ceased to exist. And commentators believe that Hezekiah and his father Ahaz had strategically not intervened with the Syrian invasion of, uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And that, uh, that they had also not intervened with the Assyrian conquest of Philistia. So initially, Hezekiah pursued a policy of non-intervention with regards to the Syrian conquest of the surrounding nations. 
Now we understand that it was God's judgment that had fallen on the kingdom of Israel, uh, kingdom of Israel and also the, the, uh, the kingdom of Philistia because of their apostasy, because of their wickedness. So after eight years, uh, there is another Assyrian king that is on the throne, not Saragon, but his son, Sennacherib. And that is, uh, uh, that is where we will pick back up in 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings 18. We'll return back to our main passage. Uh, starting in verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And this uh, invasion is historically verified by the annals of Sennacherib, which is a document uh, uh, that is from the Assyrians themselves. Assyriologist David, Daniel David Luckenbill, he translated this part of this uh, Assyrian text into English. And this is the portion that is of relevance to us to, in our study. Uh, this is the quote. And as for Hezekiah the Judean, who had not submitted unto my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities and the small cities I besieged and conquered. 200,140 people, young and old, male and female, I brought out and counted as spoil. Himself like a bird in the midst of Jerusalem, his capital city, I shut up. End quote. And after Hezekiah had invaded and taken these 46 uh, fortified cities, he had now besieged Lachish, which was a strategic city in the kingdom of Judah. We read in uh, verse 14 of chapter 18, 2 Kings 18, And Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, we'll pick, back, we'll pick that back up, now, Lachish was a fortress town in the western hill country of Judah, and it guarded an important road that led into the highlands south of Jerusalem. So it was a strategic uh, defensive post to guard against the invasion of Jerusalem. But by now, uh, Hezekiah had already laid siege to this mighty city. And archaeological evidence attests to the siege of Lachish by the Assyrians. The relief sculptures, which are on display in the British Museum, attest to the historicity of this event in antiquity. Now let's look at our, uh, our fourth point, how does Hezekiah respond? And Hezekiah's response, response is twofold. Initially, uh, there is one of submission to the Assyrian king, and uh, secondly, uh, he puts up a defense. So let's first look at his uh, initial response of submission. And we find that in 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 14. Second Kings 18, verse 14. And Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required, this, uh, uh, required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver 
and 30 talents of gold. <coughs> so Hezekiah repents of uh, his rebellion against uh, Assyria, and then he apologizes to the king, and then he basically gives Sennacherib uh, 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 a blank check or a blank offer. What do you want of me? What do you require of me for my rebellion against you? And of course, uh, Sennacherib, uh, Sennacherib uh, demands this humongous tribute of him uh, from the nation, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah doesn't have all this wealth just in storage somewhere. So he is forced to strip, temp, uh, strip this gold from the temple itself, from the treasuries of the temple, and from his own palace. This is a, a sad event in the, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, nation, of Israel, nation of Judah because the very temple that Hezekiah had reformed and brought changes to had repaired, he is now forced to, uh, to disrepair to strip the gold uh, off. And this is exactly what he does. And he's hopeful that this tribute will uh, uh, divert Hezekiah, would prevent, Hez, uh, would, sorry, will prevent Sennacherib from further invasion of the land. But sadly, this was not to be the case. Now, uh, commentators differ on uh, the, the form that the Assyrian invasion take, uh, takes. Uh, some believe that there are two invasions, the first be being the initial invasion where Sennacherib takes these 46 fortified cities and, uh, and then gets this tribute from uh, Hezekiah. At that point, he leaves uh, the land of, of Judah only to return a few years later and to lay siege to Jerusalem. That's the first perspective of two invasions. Uh, the second perspective uh, is that Sennacherib invades the land of Judah, takes those 46 cities, claims the tribute, and then reneges on this peace treaty that he has with Hezekiah, only to go on and lay siege of Jerusalem. Uh, commentators believe that the, uh, the perspective of two separate invasions of the land of Judah does not have enough evidence that there was indeed just one invasion. In fact, that's the perspective that the chronicler takes, uh, that there is just one invasion of the land of Judah. <coughs> but in either case, the invasion, the Assyrian invasion of Judah is devastating uh, to the people of the land. So we see here that Hezekiah does the more expedient thing in response to the Assyrian invasion. And it was not just an invasion, it was a tremendous conquest of the nation of Judah. And Hezekiah rightly had fear, had cause to fear the Assyrians. Old Testament scholars Philip Davies and John Rogerson state, the Syrians have earned for themselves a warlike and vicious reputation on that their own graphic art seems to confirm. Uh, the Lakish Frieze, for instance, shows an efficient and cruel war machine at work besieging the Judean city, end quote. Hezekiah's forefather, King Solomon, wise Solomon, if you recall, uh, wrote, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So here Hezekiah takes his eyes off of Yahweh and looks at the threat the Syrian threat. 
He is ensnared by the fear of man, Sennacherib, and he capitulates to his demands. What we see here is Hezekiah does not do the right thing as he had been doing all along. He does not turn to Yahweh and trust in Yahweh, who alone is his refuge and strength. And there's also no mention that he seeks counsel from his prophet, from Yahweh's prophet Isaiah, as to what to, how to deal with this crisis at hand. So that is Hezekiah's first initial response of submission to the Assyrian invasion. Now let's turn our attention to the, the second response. How does Hezekiah respond in a second way to the Assyrian invasion? And uh, that is found in the uh, narrative of the chronicler in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. If you turn over with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and we will look at that. Starting in verse 2. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Assyria, he planned with his officers and his mighty, man, mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. <coughs> so a great many people gathered. They stopped all the springs, uh, saying, why should the king of Assyria find, uh, uh, come and find much water? And then he built up all the wall that was broken down, raised the towers upon it. He built another wall, and he strengthened the Milo in the city of David. And he also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set commanders over the people and gathered, to get, uh, gathered them together in the city. <clears throat> so we see here that he, the first thing he does is he stops the water sources outside of the city. So uh, in ancient warfare, when invaders invade a certain community or a certain land, uh, they, what, what their intention is, uh, of course, to conquer that land or to conquer that community, but uh, part of their process of, of the conquest is to starve out the people, to cut off the water sources, to cut off the food uh, sources to that uh, besieged city or to that besieged community. And also they would take advantage of, uh, uh, of the land, the food sources that are in the land and the water sources. So, uh, so Hezekiah rightly addresses that and he ensures that there's a reservoir of water within Jerusalem itself while they uh, withstand uh, the, the, the Syrian uh, siege. Uh, he also uh, strengthens the defenses, whatever walls that had breaches in them or that needed to be reinforced, he goes about doing that. He makes weapons uh, and he readies the people. He rallies the people to put up a stout defense against the Syrian invasion. But most importantly, let's examine uh, what he begins to do. Uh, we see here that, that he does not totally abandon Yahweh in his submission, or rather we should say that Yahweh does not abandon his servant, his anointed king, Hezekiah. Uh, in uh, verse 7, we read, "Be strong." he says this to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. 
and the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So we see here that Hezekiah begins to make a full turn or begins to make that right turn, if you will, back to Yahweh uh, and to seek his help and to encourage the people that it is the Lord who is doing battle, who will do battle for us. Uh, However, even in this, uh, uh, Hezekiah is criticized by uh, his prophet Isaiah, uh, and we, we will see why. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22, Isaiah chapter 22, verses uh, 8 through 11. Twenty-two, eight through eleven. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you uh, counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the walls for the water of the old pool. But here's the catch. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. So Hezekiah, Isaiah's rebuke is not so much the actions of Hezekiah itself, in and of itself, because it's important. Faith without works is dead. Uh, and this, it seems this is what Hezekiah is doing. He is putting up a defense. He's doing everything within his power while relying on God ultimately to, uh, to protect his people, but it seems that that was not Hezekiah's initial response, uh, uh, even in his defense. He did not look to Yahweh first. He did not seek Yahweh's help first, even in his defense of the city, uh, but rather he sought to rely on the might of man and the strength of man instead of the strength of God. Hezekiah forgot the words of the psalmist. God is our refuge and strength. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46. So now let's begin to look at uh, the Rapshika's speech. The Rapshika's speech in uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 17. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the, of the upper pool, at, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to, to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. <coughs> so um, Hezekiah senses uh, the, uh, the, the names that are mentioned here, the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the, and the Rabshakeh, are, are not the names of individuals, but rather the, they're the titles, the titles of the top three commanders of Hezekiah's army. And the Rabshakeh, who is, becomes, who is the spokesperson among these three commanders, he is one of the chief commanders. And, uh, 
and the, and the men uh, who represent King Hezekiah are uh, men of great influence in his royal court. That is Eliakim, uh, Shibna, and Joah. So the first thing that we need to look at here in Rabshakeh's speech that is of great importance is that he sought, he seeks to undermine the trust of the people. He, he speaks not, uh, although he is meeting with these representatives of Hezekiah's court, he's really not engaging with them as we will see. He's engaging with uh, the soldiers on, on the wall of Jerusalem. He is speaking directly to the people of the land and is seeking to uh, uh, soak, uh, sow seeds of doubt and distrust among the people. Uh, let's look at verses 19 through 20. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power, of war, power for war? In whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? And then he uh, goes on to build on that trust. He says, you can't trust Egypt because if you rely on Egypt, it's like a broken reed of a, of a, staff, a broken staff of a reed. It'll pierce your hand if you rely on Egypt. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 22, you can't trust God either. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, and he goes on to say, is it not uh, God's high places that Hezekiah had torn down? And, uh, and you see here, he's saying half-truth, and he's using deception to, to sow seeds of doubt in the people uh, of Judah. And then he goes on to say in verses 23 and 24, you can't trust your own military. You, do you want horses? I can give you 2,000 horses, but you don't have enough uh, trained horsemen to commandeer those horses, even if I've provided you that, that many horses. So you can't even trust in your own military prowess. Now, secondly, uh, the second thing that, that, uh, that Rabshakeh does is that he claims that Assyria is the instrument of God's your own God's uh, instrument for judgment on your land. He says in verse 25, Moreover, is it now not with the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. That is found in verse 25. Biblical scholars uh, Philip Davies and John Rogerson say, Assyrian religion expressed a strong allegiance to the national de deity Asher, by whom enemies were overcome. Assyrian wars were holy wars. Yet the Assyrians claimed their victories not as triumphs of Asher over other gods, but as the result of support of Assyria by those gods. The speech of the Rabshakeh in 2 Kings 18.25 reflects plausible uh, Assyrian propaganda in this respect. Yahweh, he claims, is on Assyria's side. So the Rabshakeh is basically saying to the people of Judah that your God, Yahweh, is supporting our God, Asher, in our conquest of you. So your God is on the side of our, our God. So how can you win against us? Uh, and then he returns again to undermining the people's trust. 
he, he says, don't trust in your king Hezekiah. He's only going to deceive you into uh, uh, further conquest of your land. And don't let Hezekiah deceive, deceive you into trusting the Lord your God for deliverance. And notice the, the language that he uses. Uh, commentators uh, note that it's not Aramaic. Aramaic is a language of diplomacy, and it's used for uh, negotiations. Rather, he uses uh, the common Hebrew language. So he's not there, the Rapshika is not there to negotiate or to be diplomatic with the people, but he is threatening the people. He is using fear-mongering and psychological warfare to get the people to surrender to, to Assyria without having a single battle. He is in effect saying, the king of Assyria, he desires peace with you. Now, if you surrender to him, he says that in the following verses, you can live in your own country for a while, but later, uh, later I'll come and we'll take you to another land and we'll repopulate you there, but it'll be a land just like yours for you to, be, for you to live peaceably in this land where I'll deport you to. So lastly, we see that the Rabshaka ends his speech again, undermining the people's trust in their king and in their God. He says, the gods of the surrounding nations have not delivered them from my, my king, Sennacherib. So why would your God, Yahweh, deliver you out of my king's hand? So here, the Rabshakeh is engaging in psychological warfare, and he does so with masterful rhetoric in the language of his own people. So how do the people respond? How does the king respond to uh, the Rabshakeh's speech? Let's look at <coughs> verse 36, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 30, 36. But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. There, there, there is wisdom here and how, the king, how Hezekiah ensures that his representatives or the people do not answer back to the rapture. King Solomon says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like, he, like himself. And also the people or the, uh, the representatives of King Hezekiah, they go into mourning. We read in verse 37, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebda, the secretary, and Joha, the son of Asap, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their, clothes, with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. <clears throat> so that ends our narrative. Let's spend a few minutes looking at what it means to us. How do we apply this to our lives this very day? The first application point is in the form of a question. <clears throat> Why did God allow invasion on a righteous king and his people right on the heels of the Reformation. Read with me again <clears throat> Second Kings chapter or Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two <clears throat> verse one. The chronicler says, after these things, what things? After the revival, after the reformation of temple worship, 
after all the good things that God brings about uh, through King Hezekiah and the, uh, for, the, for the people, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities. And the reason why God does that is twofold. The first reason why God brought about the Syrian invasion is judgment. God was rendering judgment on the nation for the iniquities of their idolatrous forefathers. He was pouring out his covenant wrath, uh, uh, the wrath of his covenant promises on them for their disobedience. And the same is true for us believers today. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, was warning the early church believers and us today. He says, in effect, it is utter foolishness to turn away from God and to disobey him. He will judge you because he loves you and he will correct you uh, to bring you back into his fold when you stray from him. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, we read, Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. <clears throat> and the second reason that God brings about uh, judgment or brings about affliction among his people is for testing. Not all trials, difficulties, are punishments from God. God ordains such afflictions to strengthen our faith in him. James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 4 says, uh, Count it all joy, brethren, when you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, but let it have its perfect work in you. I'm paraphrasing here. The second uh, uh, application is, again, is uh, in the form of a question. So how then, as God's people, should we respond to affliction, to our times of crisis? The first way in which we respond is that we look to Christ. We see his example of intercession to his Father in heaven, leading up to his greatest affliction on our behalf on the cross. We read that, we see that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 uh, to 44. In this short narrative, we see that Christ cries out to the Father, prays to the Father three separate times. And ultimately, he surrenders his will to the Father's will regarding this affliction on the cross that he would face on the cross. In, the, in, in looking to, to God, uh, let us remember not to be ensnared by the fear of man. When we're in affliction, it is easy to be ensnared by the fear of man, whoever it is might be afflicting us, be it a loved one, be it someone else, an unsaved person, or it's easy to be ensnared by the fear of your circumstances. But rather, we should look to the example of Christ and then trust ourselves into the hands of our Heavenly Father. And don't listen to the rapshikas in your life, whatever form those rapshikas may take. Don't listen to them. Seek counsel from God alone through his holy word and seek counsel from godly people whom God has placed in your life. And pray for the Assyrians in your life. The, the, uh, Jesus said, uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. So pray for the Assyrians in your life because they, they need God in their lives just as, as much as you do. If it wasn't for God's grace, you would not be a child of the covenant. You would be an Assyrian like that person is persecuting you right now. Let's see. Uh, we're almost done here. 
Uh, how does God respond when, to his people when they cry to him in their times of affliction? How does God respond to us? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 34, verses 16 through 19. 34, verses 16 through 19. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the, to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now remember, we're coming on Easter Sunday, uh, Good Friday. God has delivered us of the greatest affliction of, of all, eternity in hell on the cross. And if God has delivered us from the greatest of all afflictions, will he not deliver us from the lesser afflictions that we face in our life today? Remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. I pray that you'd have your hand of mercy upon us, that we would continue to look to you and depend upon you uh, as we walk uh, in obedience to you, that we will uh, uh, not entrust ourselves to anyone else, but to you alone as we face various circumstances, be it difficult in our lives. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.